Our first two episodes on Troilus and Cressida looked at how Shakespeare adapts various literary traditions surrounding the Trojan War to undermine the heroism and intensify the cynicism he found in those traditions. In this episode, we look at three speeches from the play that reflect the cynicism and corruption of this world, either to lament it or increase it. James Simpson, Donald P. and Catherine B. Loker, Professor of English at Harvard University, guides our discussion. Our first speech comes from Act One. The Greek lords are in council, discussing why they have not succeeded in defeating Troy. Ulysses proposes an explanation. Ulysses is generally characterised by his cleverness and cunning. Here, he shows his philosophical intelligence as he articulates an important system of thought derived from the ancient Greeks, which describes a divine order in the cosmos. The rest of the play casts doubt on the reality of this order. But Ulysses may be right about how problematic disorder can be. Troy, yet upon his basis, had been down, and the great Hector's sword had lacked a master, but for these instances. The specialty of rule hath been neglected. And look how many Grecian tents do stand hollow upon this plain, so many hollow factions. When that the general is not like the hive to whom the foragers shall all repair, what honey is expected? Degree being visited, the unworthiest shows as fairly in the mask. The heavens themselves, the planets and this centre, observe degree, priority and place, insisture, course, proportion, season, form, office and custom in all line of order. And therefore is the glorious planet Sol in noble eminence enthroned and sphered amidst the other, whose medicinable eye corrects the ill aspects of planets evil and posts like the commandment of a king sans check to good and bad. But when the planets, in evil mixture, to disorder wonder, what plagues and what portents, what mutiny, what raging of the sea, shaking of the earth, commotion in the winds, frights, changes, horrors, divert and crack, rend and deracinate, the unity and married calm of states quite from their fixture. Oh, when degree is shaked, which is the ladder to all high designs, the enterprise is sick. How could communities, degrees in schools and brotherhoods in cities, peaceful commerce from dividable shores, the primogenitive and due of birth, prerogative of age, crowns, scepters, laurels, but by degree stand in authentic place? Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere oppugnancy. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. Strength should be lord of imbecility and the rude son should strike his father dead. Force should be right, or rather right and wrong between whose endless jar justice resides, should lose their names and so should justice too. Then... 
Everything includes itself in power. Power into will. Will into appetite. And appetite, a universal wolf, so doubly seconded with will and power, must make perforce a universal prey. And last, eat up himself. Great Agamemnon, this chaos, when degree is suffocate, follows the choking. And this neglection of degree it is, that by a pace goes backward with a purpose it hath to climb. The generals disdained by him one step below, he by the next, the next by him beneath, so every step, exampled by the first pace that is sick of his superior, grows to an envious fever of pale and bloodless emulation. And tis this fever that keeps Troy on foot, not her own sinews, to end a tale of length? Troy in our weakness stands, not in her strength. In this speech by Ulysses, his argument is that Troy is standing on account of Greek weakness rather than Trojan strength. And Greek weakness derives from a failure to recognize social hierarchy. The speech is really precious for us because it's by no means unintelligent or unphilosophical. It transmits for us platonic tradition, an ecological tradition, which has it that the structure of the cosmos is a model for the structure of human society. And to that tradition, Ulysses gives eloquent expression. The tradition is derived from the one text of Plato which was known throughout the Latin Middle Ages, which is the Timaeus, which is Plato's cosmological dialogue. And reception of Plato's Timaeus from the late mid-12th century focused especially on ecological relations between cosmos the world as a whole, cosmos as a whole, universe, and microcosmos, the individual human. So the heavens, as I say, supply a model for politics uh, and psychology and for poetics. Uh, it's an interrelated system. Ulysses begins with an account of Greek vacancy and then goes on to the source of that vacancy. He diagnoses by Greek weakness by looking to the beauty of the cosmos ruled by the sun and then moving down to the way in which human society is disordered by not following that divine model. What we have are earthquakes, plagues, rising sea levels, the fragmentation of human societies. And Ulysses goes one further by talking about the way in which human justice is destroyed in this ecological imbalance. Some scholars have taken Ulysses' speech as evidence of a worldview that prevailed in Shakespeare's culture. In this worldview, the cosmos is structured by divine and all-connecting order. All things have a place in the great chain of being that specifies their role and value in a clear, objective way. Ulysses' speech is taken to affirm the truth of this orderly system. 
Other scholars have read the speech as a yearning for such a system, an indication that it does not, in fact, seem to hold true. Some even read the speech as completely cynical, seeing Ulysses as in no way committed to this conservative, idealised system of hierarchy, and as only appealing to it when it seems politically useful to do so. Ulysses' speech is usually adduced in scholarship as a kind of last call for a now antiquated and implausible account of hierarchy. But it's actually a very powerful speech. Powerful, one, because it's philosophically coherent, and two, because the account of justice being transformed into mere appetite, the wolf appetite, is a model which needs to be addressed. If you're going to do away with hierarchy, you've got to have a a solution for the wolf appetite. Whatever Ulysses' personal beliefs, his speech gives a persuasive and coherent account of the system. And it helps us to see, by contrast, the alternative system that does seem to structure value in this play. This is not a fixed system derived from the heavens, it's a fluctuating variable system derived from the marketplace. The play stages numerous debates about whether Helen is worth the war being fought over her. Hector tells Troilus frankly, Brother, she is not worth what she doth cost the keeping. Troilus replies, What's aught but as tis valued? In economic terms, he claims that things are worth whatever people are willing to pay for them. Hector insists, on the contrary, that things have an intrinsic worth independent of their market value. But if Hector disagrees with Troilus, the play seems to disagree with Hector, at least in how often characters use the language of the marketplace. Troilus calls Cressida a pearl and himself a merchant, as if he intends to buy her. When Diomedes says Helen is not worth so many deaths in war, Paris tells him, You do as merchants do, dispraise the thing that they desire to buy. Ulysses appeals to a similar idea when he plots to send Ajax to answer Hector's challenge instead of Achilles. Let us, like merchants, first show foul wares and think perchance they'll sell. If not, the lustre of the better shall exceed by showing the worst first. The value of better goods isn't stable, but can be artificially inflated by juxtaposing them with worse. Honour, the most prized commodity in the play, is also the one most subject to changing valuations. Achilles hears that all with one consent praise newborn gourds, though they are made and moulded of things past, and give to dust that is a little guilt more lord than guilt o'er-dusted. A lesser deed that is visible in the present is given more honour than a greater deed done in the past. And the person that says this is Ulysses. Ulysses knows just how unstable fame and honour can be. Even if he believes that 
degree, priority and place in all line of order should govern society, he's well aware that it does not govern this society. And he doesn't simply lament the fluctuation of honour, he works to make it happen. Ulysses believes that Achilles has grown too proud, and it is his idea to deflate Achilles' status by artificially inflating Ajax's. Among ourselves, give Ajax allowance for the better man, he urges. Ajax employed plucks down Achilles' plumes. If Ulysses has a solution to the wolf appetite, it's to combat one wolf with another. Nestor replies to Ulysses' plan, Two curs shall tame each other, pride alone must tar the mastiffs on as twere a bone. This image, however, of the two great warriors as warring dogs does little to restore the prospects of heavenly harmony for the world of this play. The play itself gives no ground for believing that this society can match up to this model of ecological order, human society being based on the order of the cosmos. But it's nonetheless, um, I think, a um, precious speech spoken from within a coherent philosophical tradition. Our next speech follows immediately after the previous one. Ulysses diagnosed the problem in the Greek army as a failure to respect hierarchy and rank. Once one soldier disrespects his superiors, all the rest do too. Ulysses now explains that this problem originated with Achilles. What's interesting is that the problem, as Ulysses describes it, consists in Achilles and Patroclus acting the part of Greek generals in a way that undermines their nobility and dignity. This is not so different from what Shakespeare does himself when he presents the heroic Greek and Trojan warriors of epic as ignoble bullies and schemers in his cynical, demystifying play. The great Achilles, whom opinion crowns the sinew and the forehand of our host, having his ear full of his airy fame, grows dainty of his worth. And in his tent lies mocking our designs. With him, Patroclus, upon a lazy bed, the live-long day breaks scurril jests. And with ridiculous and awkward action, which slanderer he imitation calls, he pageants us. Sometime, great Agamemnon, thy topless deputation he puts on. And like a strutting player whose conceit lies in his hamstring, and doth think it rich to hear the wooden dialogue and sound twixt his stretch footing and the scaffoldage, such to be pitied and overrested seeming, he acts thy greatness in. And when he speaks, tis like a chime amending, with terms unsquared, which from the tongue of roaring typhon dropped would seem hyperboles. At this fusty stuff, the large Achilles, on his pressed bed lolling, from his deep chest laughs out a loud applause, cries, Excellent, tis Agamemnon just, now play me Nestor, hem and stroke thy beard, as he be dressed to some oration. That's done as near as the extremist ends of parallels as like as Vulcan and his wife. 
Yet God Achilles still cries, Excellent! Tis Nestor right! Now play in me, Patroclus, arming to answer a night alarm! And then, forsooth, the faint defects of age must be the scene of mirth. To cough and spit, and with a palsy fumbling in his gorget, shaking and out the rivet. And at this sport, Sir Valor dies, cries, Oh, enough, Patroclus, or give me ribs of steel! I shall split all in pleasure of my spleen and in this fashion all our abilities gifts natures shapes severals and generals of grace exact achievements plots orders preventions excitements to the field or speech for truce success or loss what is or is not serves as stuff for these two to make paradoxes there are very few really intelligent speeches dialogues in this play. This is one of them. The speech about degree is uh, a great speech spoken by a philosopher. That speech is immediately followed by a speech given by Ulysses' very well-informed but outraged literary critic. His praise of order is followed by a very specific example of disorder and of degree being overturned. And fascinatingly, for Shakespeare as dramatist. This is an account of theatrical disorder. Ulysses recounts the theatrical entertainments going on in Achilles' tent as Patroclus performs mocking satirical theatrical skits to while away the time as Achilles refuses to fight. And the targets of his scurrilous, burlesque, parodic, theatrical mocking, the targets of that mocking are precisely other Greek generals. Ulysses is outraged that the Greek leaders are being played in a popular theatre, which slanderer he imitation calls. Ulysses is very well aware of all the buzzwords of humanistic literary education, imitation. It might be a humanistic textual ideal, but this isn't imitation, says Ulysses. This is dirty street theatre. He pageants us, going back to a, a street, a model of street theatre. This is irreverent theatrical mockery. Clearly, Shakespeare himself, as playwright, loves it, even if Ulysses doesn't. This, is, this might be the one moment in the play where Shakespeare loves something. <laughs> He loves this really gloves-off theatre. Patroclus struts to burlesque, deflationary mockery, mockering over-rested seeming with ridiculous hyperbole. And Ulysses is clearly worried that this very council session of the Greeks will soon be matter for pageanting street theatre by Patroclus. Ulysses is really learned. He knows the language of philosophy, but he also knows the language of literary and theatrical humanistic criticism, scurril jests, imitation, pageants, paradoxes. But he fears that all this learning is going itself to become a target for street theatre. He fears that 
he's going to be the object of derision soon enough. Our final speech is from Act 5. After learning of Hector's death, Troilus tells his fellow soldiers, Strike a free march to Troy, with comfort go. Hope of revenge shall hide our inward woe. Then Pandarus approaches him, and Troilus fiercely sends him away. Hence, broker, lackey, ignominy and shame, pursue thy life and live I with thy name. This speech is Pandarus's reply, and the last lines of the play. After serving as a go-between, or pander, to arrange Troilus and Cressida's sexual liaison, he now addresses his fellow panders in the audience, and hopes they will share his gruesome fate. With this, Shakespeare's determinedly anti-heroic play comes to an anti-heroic, anti-romantic end. A goodly medicine for my aching bones. Oh, world, world, world! Thus is the poor agent despised. Oh, traitors and bawds, how earnestly you set a work and how ill-requited! Why should our endeavour be so loved and the performance so loathed? What verse for it? What instance for it? Um, let me see. Full merrily the humble bee doth sing till he hath lost his honey and his sting and being once subdued in armed tail sweet honey and sweet notes together fail. <coughs> Good traders in the flesh set this in your painted cloths. As many as be here of Pander's Hall, your eyes half out, weep out at Pander's fall. Or, if you cannot weep, yet give some groans, though not for me, yet for your aching bones. Brethren and sisters of the hold-door trade, some two months hence my will shall here be made. It should be now, but that my fear is this, some gallant goose of Winchester would hiss. Till then I'll sweat and seek about for eases, and at that time bequeath you my diseases. Both the quarter of 1609 and the folio of 1623 contain this epilogue spoken by Pandarus. Now, many epilogues in Shakespeare's plays are wonderful moments where there's a kind of knowing sympathy between play cast and audience. A figure from the cast steps out and recognises that the play is now over and starts talking with the audience as a professional player talking with a paying audience. And these speeches are often very gentle, knowing, inward, intimate and sympathetic. Talking to an audience in the real world now, occupying this liminal, intimate space. Well, I'm afraid we're in for another shock. I've used the word shock a lot. We have to keep using it. Pandarus's epilogue is toxic. Pandarus has been wholly marginalised by the action of Troilus and Cressida. But here at the end, he makes a comeback, bidding farewell to an audience. Although he doesn't bid farewell, he bids fair 
badly to an audience. So far from offering corrective, so far from urging the audience to take issue with the world of militarist idiocy that they've just witnessed, Panderus, that word again shockingly, wants to spread the infection of his dyspepsia to the audience. Infection was a key theme in one of the medieval Troy texts. In the 15th century, the Scottish poet Robert Henryson wrote a poem called The Testament of Cressid as a sequel to Chaucer's Troilus and Cressida. And it's one that is infinitely less kind to Cressida than Chaucer is. One word about a key source, which is virtually never mentioned in the scholarship, and that is Henryson's Testament of Cressid. Cressid is abandoned by the Greeks. In my view, she has contracted a venereal disease. She becomes what is called a leper. It's, it's so shocking. You, you have to be sitting down to hear this news. And she joins the colony of lepers in no man's land outside Troy. She's infected. Does this theme of infection inflect, infect Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida? I think the answer is yes. I think the thematics of toxicity, infection, venereal disease are very visible and exaggerated in Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida. The motif of infection appears most prominently from Thersites. In his first appearance, he says, Agamemnon, how if he had boils full all over, generally, and those boils did run, then there would come some matter from him. I see none now. Ulysses saluted Agamemnon solemnly as, Thou great commander, nerves and bones of Greece and gave him applause and approbation for his wise words. Thersites translates Agamemnon from strong nerve and bone to boils and skin disease, and says that pus oozing from these boils would have more substance than any words that come from his mouth. Thersites curses the Greek army with disease. Now the dry sapigo on the subject and war and lechery confound all. The vengeance on the whole camp, or rather the Neapolitan bone ache. Sapigo is a skin infection and the Neapolitan bone ache is a venereal disease that Thersites wishes on all the Greeks, much as Pandarus wishes his sexually transmitted disease upon members of the audience here. Thersites talks about infection, but the last moment of the play, the epilogue spoken by Pandarus, is no less shocking for wishing infection upon, upon fellow workers in the sex trade. He doesn't speak as an actor, but he speaks as a traitor and, a, believe it or not, as a panda working in the sex trade. He's suffering himself from a venereal disease, these aching bones, and he wants to spread the disease amongst his fellow traders, some of whom may be in the audience. 
that he's addressing. Once Pandora says he has a goodly medicine for my aching bones, at that time, I can hardly bring myself to read it. At that time, I'll bequeath you my diseases. Oh dear. <laughs> That's how this play ends. It's a curse. A curse of a terrible kind on its audience. It's a toxic, toxic play that promises to spread its toxicity. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances by the following actors. Rob Miles for Ulysses. Troy yet upon his basis. And the great Achilles. Austin Tichenor for Pandarus, a goodly medicine. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare After All. Jonathan Gill Harris, A Modern Perspective, Troilus and Cressida. Jamie Rogers, Cressida in 21st Century Performance. Claire M. Tiley, The Text of Cressida and Every Ticklish Reader. And the following editions of Troilus and Cressida the 2015 Arden Shakespeare, and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more about the show by visiting shakespeareforall.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>